follow along with us, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. So you can read the text with us and follow along with us. So verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 2, this um, chapter, this uh, vignette that we're going to read about Jesus at the wedding feast brings up some interesting topics that we're going to be discussing today. So I pray that our hearts are ready to receive from God's word and uh, that our hearts are sensitive to the truth of God's word as well. So John chapter 2, you should be there. Uh, beginning at verse 1 as we read on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding so let's pray father we ask that as we cover this um, very uh, amazing story uh, early in Jesus ministry recorded in this gospel I pray that our hearts would be sensitive to hear the truth of God's word over very important topics when it comes to the, the wedding ceremony, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to um, drinking wine, things like that, that there's a lot of questions and confusion, uh, a lot of definitions and a lot of guidelines given um, that are not biblical. And Lord, we want to look at this carefully. We want to look at it in the light of your word. And uh, Lord, we want to leave here saying amen. We know what your word declares. Um, Lord, you want the very best for us. And so give us truth um, as we study your word. And we know that your word is truth. So thank you that we have the opportunity to look at this um, very carefully this morning. So touch our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what the third day spoken of here in verse 1, we're not exactly sure. Most Bible scholars and, and commentators suggest that it probably just flows out of chapter 1. That is, three days after Philip and Nathaniel followed Jesus. And you recall that we finished chapter 1 with Nathaniel under the fig tree. Jesus called him to follow him. And so now it will be three days later that uh, Jesus is invited to this wedding feast. And so we see here right away that Jesus, our Lord, putting his stamp of approval upon the wedding ceremony. At the beginning of his ministry, he puts his seal of approval upon the civil and the legal and the spiritual marriage ceremony. And the reason that I believe that it's important to note this and consider this is because today in the church and among many Christians, there's different mindsets and, and thoughts concerning marriage that really are not biblical. There are those couples that perhaps that, that I've talked to over the years of ministry who will say, well, we don't need to go through the civil or the legal or the religious ceremony. What we do is we do it in private and we go up in the mountains, for example, to our favorite spot and we're one with God and we're one with each other. And in private, you know, we consider ourselves to be married as we'll exchange vows or whatever it might be. And here's the thing to remember is that I always see in God's word that that wedding ceremony, the civil and legal and religious ceremony is always elevated in God's word. And I believe that when a couple goes through that civil ceremony, that, that spiritual ceremony, religious ceremony, the, the legal ceremony, that it makes that marriage stronger and that commitment and that covenant stronger. And we see that displayed in God's word very, very carefully. And so that's one of the mindsets that I see with people. Well, we'll just do it privately and we'll just go up and declare ourselves to be married. And I don't see that that's biblical at all. Matter of fact, it is interesting that those 
who have done that, I ask them, by the way, when it comes to tax time, do you file as single or as a married couple? And it's very in interesting that almost every case they say, well, we file as single. It's not the government's business and all of this. So, all right. So the second mindset. And this is something that is happening more and more in the church today. As couples are saying, well, it's not important to get married. And we're just going to live together. It is absolutely unbelievable how many Christians that they think it's okay for them to live together with their boyfriend, with their girlfriend. And we're committed to each other and we love each other and that's what's important and we'll just live together. And there are even those who will come along and they'll try to justify it by saying, well, we're going to live together, we're going to live in separate bedrooms and we're not going to be sexually active. And the problem is, number one, that you're not to give the appearance of any evil whatsoever is what the scripture says. The second thing is, is when you do that, it's a terrible example to other couples and what you're saying, it's okay for you to live with somebody when you're not married and other couples think that it's okay to do that and it's not a good witness to them the third problem is this, that the temptation is too great. In 22 years of ministry, I've talked to a lot of couples that thought, we'll just live together, we'll live separately, and what happens more times than not is they end up falling into sin. They end up being sexually active, and oftentimes what happens, there's this cycle that they'll be sexually active for a while, and then they get convicted, and they think, well, we've got to separate, and they separate, and then the temptation is too great, and they become sexually active once again. And it is wrong, and there are couples that say that they're Christians that will live together and they have no problem sleeping in the same bed. And they say, well, God loves us and it's okay and we're committed to each other. And they buy into society's you know, definition that it's okay and acceptable. And you know what? God does love you, but he's calling you to repent because it's sin and it's a sin of fornication. And fornication is sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. And listen, God wants to bless you, and he wants to bless your life, and so he has set the standards, and the problem has been that churches and denominations have come along, and they've written a whole new set of morals and, um, that contradict God's word concerning relationships and when it concerns the marriage. The third mindset that we see today that we're dealing with, and you know that we're seeing it almost daily in the news is that many have come along and they're redefining marriage and we know that the biblical definition of marriage is given to us clear back in the book of Genesis chapter 2 when God said that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh that's the definition of marriage that is given to us that marriage is God ordained it is not man ordained you see, man comes along and tries to redefine marriage, to say that marriage is between two men or two women. And the Bible says that it's between a man and a woman. It is God-ordained. When they came and asked Jesus about marriage in Matthew's gospel, he gave that definition that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he said what God has joined together, not man, but what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. 
and God's intention for that marriage covenant, which the scripture calls as a holy institution. It's a holy covenant between two people that the intention of God is for them to remain married for the rest of their lives. And when anybody comes to me and says that we want to be formally united together in marriage, I will talk to them, I will counsel them about the definition of marriage, what the roles are as husbands and wives, what God says about all those issues concerning marriage and a family and, and everything that will help them and benefit them so they have a clear understanding that God wants to bless their marriage and he is the strength and he is the one that's going to give you wisdom in the marriage covenant. And it is a decision not to be taken lightly, but very reverently and soberly and seriously in what two people believed to be God's will for their life. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And when that civil, legal, religious, spiritual ceremony is given, that as they stand before God and friends and witnesses, and as they are married together, it's a holy institution and covenant that they have entered into. And the key in that marriage is this, that you invite Jesus. Just as we see here in our text, you invite Jesus in that decision that you have made. And listen, any of you that are considering marriage, you should be praying about it. You should be seeking the Lord about it. And I ask people when they come to see me that why is it that you are getting married? And the standard answer is, oh, because we love each other. And I understand that they do love each other. They should love each other. And, and we want to make a commitment, but also that we have prayed about it and we we really feel like this is God's will for our lives. And we have a desire to look at God's word, what he says about marriage and how we are to live as a married couple. It is the probably second most important decision that you will ever make who it is that you marry next to making a decision for Jesus Christ. Because the reason is, is because you're going to be with that person perhaps for the next 40, 50, 60 years of your life. It is more important than where you're going to live or what career you're going to choose or what car you're going to drive or what house you're going to buy. Is the person that you're going to enter into that holy covenant. So it's important for us to have a good understanding of what the scripture says about marriage. We can't cover it all here this morning. There's uh, not enough time for us to do that. But we see that Jesus here is at the wedding feast and he does his first miracle. So if anyone suggests to you that God doesn't care about the wedding ceremony, just turn them to John chapter 2 and say, this is where the Lord did his first miracle. He went to Canaan, which is not far from Nazareth, up there in the Galilee region. Nazareth, of course, is where Jesus grew up. And mother, uh, his mother, that is, uh, Mary would be there at the wedding feast and in those days in the ancient Jewish culture the wedding feast would last for about seven days for seven days a whole week would be where the people were around they they celebrated and it is interesting that during that week-long celebration the bride was not really seen you see, the bride was taken away by the groom and they would have intimacy and they would enjoy each other. 
And usually in a small village like Canaan, which was a small village 2,000 years ago, again, Nazareth was a very small village. Most of the towns were small. The, the bride and the groom would be in a house or be in a room or, or somewhere in that village, and they really wouldn't be seen. That is the, the bride. And the relatives and the friends would come around. They would stay in the area, in the house, and what they would do is they would prepare meals in the house and niceties for the newly married couple. And they would send the meals and the niceties, you know, to that part of the house that they were at or where they were staying, if they had their own home close by where everybody was. So what it was, it was kind of like a honeymoon with all of your friends and all of your relatives that were hanging out. So that's the way it was. And at the end of seven days, what would happen is the bride would appear and great attention and applause would be given to her and the celebration uh, would begin to conclude for you know, the reemergence of the bride. And it is believed that that time, at that part of the wedding feast, is when a problem arose here in verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now the question always comes up, was this real wine? Was it fermented wine? I don't know for sure, but there is no indication that it wasn't real wine. And the reason that people want to know is because they want to know is that, okay, if I drink wine as a Christian. Matter of fact, one of the critics of Christianity referred to this chapter and called it Jesus the bootlegger, is what they called it. So there are those who will look at this and they will have the wrong idea, the wrong picture, really what was going on. Here's the thing to remember that in this day and age, that wine was more of a stable you know, article of drink uh, for food. The water was bad. Water was really bad. And they didn't have purification processes like what we have today. And so they would have wine. And then also, Paul would tell Timothy, of course, in 1 Timothy, Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your stomach. So it was also used for medicinal purposes as well. But as we look at the scriptures, we know that wine was used at the wedding ceremony. It was probably for minute wine. But don't picture this as some big drunken party. And Jesus is going to provide the wine for it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. We know that there is the sin of drunkenness that is spoken of in the scriptures. We looked at it in the book of Galatians just recently. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us very specifically that we're not to be drunk with wine. And I know what the scripture has to say for me specifically and personally as an overseer of the church. That in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as an overseer that I am told that I am not to be given over to wine. So I do not drink wine. I do not drink alcohol of any kind because that's what God's word declares to me. Now, there are those of you that might be saying, well, I like to have a glass of wine. I like to have a beer, as maybe some of you guys are saying. I have liberty in Christ. I just want to say this. You have liberty in Christ. Paul would write, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that he's writing about our liberty in Christ. He's telling us to be careful and to be wise. He would write that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And the apostle would go on to write to them, I will not be brought under the power of anything that will hurt me. 
You see, we can love and enjoy our freedom and liberty that we have in Christ. Matter of fact, in a recent study of the book of Galatians that we saw that Paul would write that stand fast in the liberty in which we have in Christ Jesus. And if you were with us in that study, you recall that having liberty in Christ doesn't just mean that we get to go out and do whatever it is that we want to do in life and following after the, the flesh and being dictated by fleshly desires and works. But what it means is I get to live for him. And it means that not only this is what I get to do for Christ, but also this is what I don't have to do, or this is also not to do, to be in bondage and being bound up by those things that will hurt me. Listen, every single one of us in this room, I bet that we know somebody that alcohol has really hurt them in their lives. We know that alcohol is a destroyer to many. That it destroys families, it destroys marriages, and it destroys lives. Again, I've seen it in over 20 years of ministry. And it hurts. And I love my freedom too much. It's glorious to be free from those things, to be free in Christ, to where I don't have to be in bondage. That's what freedom means. So listen, I don't set the rules for you. But I am going to encourage you to be wise, all right? And be careful. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And seek it with all of your heart. And follow wholeheartedly after the Lord. And don't be deterred by anything that will end up bringing hurt to you. And if you want true freedom and blessing, you be that person that is fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and desiring to live a life that is pleasing to him. And know this, that God wants to bless you. Don't think that God wants to be a killjoy in your life or ruin your fun. And true happiness, oh, how blessed. That's what that word means, oh, how happy. That's what the word blessed means. Happiness, true blessing comes by surrendering and following after Jesus to where you can experience that life abundantly that he has for you. So I want to encourage you, you keep focus on the Lord and you be submitted to him and to his word because he wants what is best for us. And it's a loving father that says, listen, don't be filled with wine because it will be bad news. And it'll end up causing destruction and hurt to you and to many around you, in your homes, to your spouse, to your children. And here's the thing, Satan will trick many people into thinking that I can handle it, I can flirt with this, and I can continue in, in you know, hanging out at the bars and, and drinking and all of this, and it'll be okay, and it ends up being a dangerous place for them to be. I don't set the rules for you. But I do want to encourage you to stay close to the Lord and take heed to his word, and be wise, and be careful, all right? So back to our text here. Here in John's gospel, again, Jesus' ministry begins at a wedding. He will conclude his ministry with the church in a wedding, that is, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And just as the bride would be taken away by the groom, the husband, for seven days as it took place in ancient Israel and then reemerged, well, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, will come for us, his bride, the church, all those who name the name of Jesus, and he's going to take us away to be with him. We know that the scripture tells us that. 
And as he takes us away, Isaiah speaks of it in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 20 and 21. For your note takers, I'll read it to you. That Isaiah writes, as God declares, come my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. We know that Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 declares, Blessed are those who are called to the merry supper of the Lamb. You see, we are going to be raptured to be with the Lord. For seven years we will be with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then we are going to reemerge with him our bridegroom, as he will return and establish his kingdom. So it's a wonderful picture that we see here, but also you recall that in chapter 1, verse 17 of John's gospel, we read last time, that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses, in bringing the plagues on Egypt, his first miracle was that he turned water into blood. Jesus' first miracle, we will see, is turning water into wine, which is a symbol of joy. So here they are, they're out of wine, which was not a good thing at this time. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And some scholars have suggested, because Mary had a concern that they were out of wine, that perhaps she was in a position of being the hostess which would usually fall to the responsibility of a close relative, probably an aunt, but we don't know for sure. But Mary shows concern for the problem, we know that, and she turns to her son and says, hey, we're out of wine. And I don't think that she's saying that, so she is you know, kind of given this su suggestion, hey, you know, Jesus, can you and the boys run down to the liquor store and get some more wine? That's not what she is suggesting. We need to look at this carefully as we continue. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Again, we need to consider this. They run out of wine. Mary comes to Jesus, tells him the problem. He responds by saying, my hour has not yet come. And when Jesus uses that word woman, he is not being disrespectful to his mom at all. That's not a term of disrespect. It isn't like, woman, quit bothering me. This isn't my problem. You need to deal with it. It wasn't that way at all. Actually, in the Hebrew, this is a, a term of endearment. This is a term of respect. Hey, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, as we go through John's gospel, seven times in John's gospel, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 17, right before Jesus gets arrested there in the garden, Jesus praying to the Father says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Speaking of the hour that Jesus was to be crucified, taken upon the sins of humanity upon himself. Now think with me. Hey, son, we're out of wine. What concern is that of mine? My hour hasn't come. And I personally believe that Mary wasn't just concerned about getting more wine, but primarily she is thinking this is the time. Do a miracle. And then people will know that you are of God. And it's interesting that as we look at this, that this is Jesus' first miracle. 
He hadn't done any miracles before this. Sometimes we can think that Jesus, when he was a kid, you know, was showing off to his friends and doing miracles, you know, raising up big boulders and, you know, turning stones into birds and things like that, or showing off to dad. He had done no miracles before this, is what the scripture very clearly says. But Mary knows that he is from God. She remembers what the angel told her some 30 years before this, as recorded in Luke chapter 1. As the angel said that that which is conceived in you, Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to bear a son, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And Mary believed that, and, and it would be fulfilled, and she praises God there in Luke chapter 1. But the others don't know that Jesus is the Son of God. And for over 30 years, Mary's reputation has been on the line. People have gossiped about her. She has been the recipient of slander. People are whispering about her all through these years. Maybe even here at this wedding feast. Oh, there's Mary. And there's Jesus. Oh, she came up pregnant with Jesus before her and Joseph were married. Oh, my, my. She seems like a, a nice woman. And you know people have been talking about it through all these years, so much so that word got down to the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 8, as the religious leaders were coming against Jesus, as Jesus was speaking about where his authority came from, it came from the Father, and the religious leaders would shoot back at Jesus and say, well, we weren't born out of fornication. Well, that was a nice dig. The implication they were given is you were. You were born out of fornication. We've heard the story. You were born out of wedlock. And no doubt Mary had lived with that for all these years, her reputation being constantly questioned. And she very well at this time, she's thinking, at last, this is it. Let's really show these people who you really are. And if they see who you really are, that you are of God, then they're not going to be so slanderous of me. But woman, respectfully and tenderly, my hour has not come. And the issue isn't about you, but the issue is that in a few short years, I'm going to suffer and die and be buried and rise again, and that's when my time will come. Sometimes in our lives, we pray, Lord, this, this is the hour. I want you to work uh, now in some spectacular way, amazing way to help me, to maybe look good, to, to, to really help my position or my prestige or or my reputation. And people need to see your power working through me. And yeah, we can be noble about it and humble about it in our prayers, but in reality, that's what we want. We want God to help us in some way, that I get elevated in some way, that my reputation is, you know, becomes, you know, wonderful and, and, and that my prestige is help. And Jesus may whisper in our hearts very respectfully and tenderly, because he loves us. What have I to do with thee? This is not the hour. This isn't the place. And I will work in your life, in my time, in my way, to bring glory not to you, but to me, to your Father. And I'm going to work in your situation, and I'm going to work in the problem that you may be facing, and the challenges that, that are before you, 
but you need to trust in me and you need to wait on me. And so we see that that's an important lesson and truth that we see in the scriptures. I can't help but think about Paul the Apostle. We've talked about him quite exclusively as we went through the book of Acts and then Galatians. And you know that Paul, before he was converted, persecuted the church, and then he is converted on the way to Damascus. And when he was converted and went to Damascus, he was told that he was going to be a chosen vessel. Uh, Paul, you're a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That promise was given to him. But Paul had to wait for that promise to be fulfilled, didn't he? He went to Damascus. He went into the synagogue because he had such a heart for his countrymen. He gives the gospel to them. They don't receive from him. He then goes to Arabia for three years. We know from Galatians chapter 2. He would then come back. He would go back into the synagogue, preach Christ in the synagogue. This time they want to kill him. So he has to escape Damascus under the cover of night, being lowered in a basket over the wall. And then he goes to Jerusalem. The apostles are holding him out at arm's length. They're saying, we're not so sure, and the Christians as well, about this Paul, his conversion. Because remember that he persecuted the Christians very heavily in Jerusalem. So they're kind of holding him out at arm's length. And he goes into the synagogue there in Jerusalem. He preaches Christ to them. They want to kill him. So what they do is they send him on a boat there in Joppa, send him to Tarsus, and there Paul is in Tarsus for about 10 years. He's learning to make tents. He's probably thinking, you know what? My reputation isn't good. When is my hour going to come? The promise has been given to me. But we know that God was preparing Paul and working in his heart. And he would keep trusting the Lord and holding on to that promise. He would do it day after day and month after month and year after year for about 10 years. And then finally, there comes a knock on his door. It's Barnabas. Hey, Paul, revival has broke out in Antioch. The Gentiles are getting saved. Come with me. Let's teach them. And you know that then in Acts chapter 13, that it would be the Holy Spirit that said, separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry. And they would begin their missionary journeys. And you know the rest of the story. I think about David. You know there in 1 Samuel that it was uh, Samuel the prophet who came to Jesse's house and said, I'm here to anoint the new king of Israel. God had rejected Saul. And so he looked at Eliab, the eldest of Jesse's sons, and said, surely this is God's anointed. And the Lord said, no, I've rejected him. And it would be finally that they went out to the field and they got David who was out there with the sheep, the youngest of Jesse's sons, the one who had a heart after God, and he would be anointed the new king of Israel. But he didn't ascend to the throne right away, didn't he? The rest of 1 Samuel talks about how David was pursued by Saul in the wilderness, and he would be pursued by Saul for like 12, 13 years, running for his life before the kingdom would be given to him. God had given him a promise, was preparing him for that time, just like he would with Paul, just like he would with Mary. Mary, that you're blessed among women, but this is not the right time. This is not my hour. And maybe the Lord has spoken to you. He desires to use you, and you're wondering when that hour will come. When are you going to do that work, Lord? You be like Paul, you be like David, you be like Mary that you wait on the Lord and you trust in the Lord and be ready 
because the Lord will use you in his way and in his time not to bring glory to you, but to bring glory to him and for his will to be done. Woman, this is not the time. My hour hasn't come. And it won't come until I'm arrested there in the garden and the sufferings begin and I die on that cross for the sins of humanity. I'm buried and I rise again after three days and ascend to my Father. Then they will understand more fully that you indeed bore the Son of God born of a virgin, that you are blessed among all women, but you need to trust in me and wait for my perfect timing. And it's the same with every single one of us. And the Lord will come if he's given you a promise, if he's putting that desire on your hearts, spoken to you in that still small voice, that the day will come where he says, now is the hour. That people will see my work being done through you. You just continue to wait and to trust and to be ready. So verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So Mary here is indeed a very special woman. This is the last recorded phrase of Mary. It's not the last time that we see her mentioned in the scriptures. Later on in John's gospel in chapter 19, we'll see that she's mentioned as being there at the cross, watching Jesus die on the cross. She's also mentioned as being in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, praying with the disciples. But these are the last recorded words of Mary and how wise she is. Whatever he says to do, you do it. You listen to Jesus. You do what he tells you to do. We know that there are those who will come along and say, well, that you can pray to Mary, that she can be an intercessor. If you want your prayers answered, you know, pray to Mary because he's not going to refuse his mother, is what some will say. And we know that that's not biblical at all. Yes, Mary is a very special woman. Yes, she is blessed among women, but she is not our mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So in our praying, we go right to Jesus, to our mediator, our advocate, according to 1 John. Jesus Christ, we don't pray to Mary, we don't pray to the saints. We go to Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father, and the scripture said, who is ever making intercession for us. You may recall if you were here last week when we had our outdoor service, that I was reading that letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus there in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. And here Jesus is commending them on standing on truth and their work and their labor. And one of the things that they were commended on was that you there at Ephesus, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate is what Jesus said. Nico means to rule over. It's where the word Nike comes from, to rule over. Uh, Nico, rule over laetan, laity, to rule over the laity. It was a doctrine even in the first century that was that there are men that will rule over the laity, that you have to go through a man for forgiveness of sin. You have to go through a man to, to pray to God, to, to, you know, he was kind of the mediator. And here it is, Jesus that says, I hate that doctrine because it flies right in the face of what he did for us. And he alone is our mediator who died for us so that we can have true relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. And that's the beautiful thing about being a Christian is that we can enter into, as Hebrew chapter 10 says, into the Holy of Holies 
because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We can do it with confidence, not our own confidence, but in confidence in what Jesus Christ did for us. And he has made a way for us to directly be able to go to the Father that comes through him. We don't go through a man. We don't go through saints. We don't go through Mary. We go directly to the Lord. And that's good news for you and for me. And you see, even in the Old Testament, one of the weaknesses of the Old Testament covenant is that it didn't bring the people into the presence of the Lord. And that's what the author of Hebrews writes and emphasizes that the new covenant, which is a better covenant, that we can now come into the presence of the Lord. You see, only the high priest in the Old Testament was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory, the tangible presence of God was. And now we are told as Christians that we can come into the Holy of Holies, to His throne of grace, any time we want. And we can do it as many times as we want. And we can stay as long as we want. Going to our Lord, that's what Jesus has done for us. So He alone is our mediator, and, and Jesus, He loved His mom. He was even looking out for her when He was on the cross. We will see later in John's Gospel, but... She didn't influence him. He didn't take orders from her. He did what was the will of his father. And so a real key in our walk with the Lord is when we realize that he is the master, that I am the clay, he's the potter. And I'm not here to boss him or manipulate him or dictate to him or demand from the Lord as some of the attitudes of those, particularly in the prosperity movement. I am to do what he says to do and whatever his will is for me. In verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So here are six water pots of stone, large ones, with the capacity to hold about 20 gallons. And they were used for the Jewish purification rites before and after meals. So Jesus says to the servants, number one, notice, put in water. Second of all, make sure that you fill up those pots to the brim. And then thirdly, verse 8, and he said to them, draw out uh, now and take it to the master to feast. And they took it. We as servants of the Lord, we can learn from these servants who are hearing from the Lord here in John chapter 2. You see, for you and I who desire to be his servants to a greater degree, Notice that, first of all, that they were obedient. They didn't argue with the Jesus. They didn't hem and haw. They didn't ask questions. They didn't say, well, this is a waste of time, or why are we doing this, or I would do it differently. They just did it. And if you want to see miracles worked out in your life, then obedience is a real key. Doing what is right and what God has told you and how to live. When it comes to the marriage relationship, when it comes to relationship with others, that you do what God's word declares. And maybe, just maybe, that there may be a couple that is here that you're thinking, we need a miracle in our marriage here today. And God wants to work a miracle in your marriage. But it's going to take two people that are going to humble themselves and they're going to say that we're going to be obedient to what the Lord has declared to us that we're going to respect each other that as a husband you're going to live with your wife in an understanding way that you're going to love her as christ loves the church that means you're going to serve her that you're going to lay down your life for her 
you're going to cherish her, and you're going to love her in a way that Christ loves us. And wives, that you're going to be obedient to your husband as unto the Lord, that's the qualifier, and you're going to respect him. And husbands, you're to honor your wives. And as you humble yourselves and allow God to do that work, he's going to work a miracle in you as you continue to grow in your love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants to do that miracle. But you've got to be obedient to him. As you are obedient in any area of your life, you're going to see God work in a very powerful way. So not only are we to be obedient to the Lord, but fervent for the Lord, secondly. That is, served with enthusiasm. Notice that they filled the, the pots up to the brim. They didn't say, well, we'll fill them up. I think halfway is good enough. Three quarters of the way. No, they filled them up to the brim. And I pray that whatever we do, we do it with enthusiasm. Give your best to the Lord. Don't do it half-heartedly. In the Old Testament, we're given that, that, that principle and that truth there as they would bring the first fruits of the harvest to the Lord. The Lord wants the first fruits of our lives. He wants the best of our devotion and our service for Him. So oftentimes the Lord gets the leftovers or we're half-hearted. Live for the Lord and serve the Lord with enthusiasm. And it was Paul that wrote in Romans chapter 12 verse 11, not lagging in diligence but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And then thirdly, draw it out. Listen, take what the Lord has given you and you give it to others, verse 8. Give people the living waters of Jesus Christ. You serve them, you give to them, you be a godly example to them and witness to them. And you look for ways to be able to minister to people and to give out to others. Don't just be taken in. But you need to be given out as well. Because people need to see the light of Jesus Christ that is in you and the truth that is in your heart. They need to hear it. And the reality of Jesus Christ being worked out in your life as you live for him. And as you do, as you are being obedient and as you are living for the Lord fervently and what it is that you're doing for him and serving him and as you are giving out, you're going to see miracles. And as we finish this morning, verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the waters that was made wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. In verse 11, this uh, beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Usually at the feast, the good wine comes out, and then as your t taste buds are less sensitive, then the inferior stuff comes out. I just want to close with this. In your life, and in the life of this church, I think God still has the best. He has the best for you, He has the best for your family, and He has the best for us here at Calvary Chapel. And I pray that we never get into the mindset or the thought of, well, you know what, God has done what he's going to do. No, he wants to do more. And he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. You know, it's interesting as you read, you know, church magazine, you know, I try not to because so oftentimes it's just worldly stuff. But some who are into the church growth and and all of this, they'll say that after a ministry has been around for about 10 years, they've reached their peak, and what they're going to be is what they're going to be. 
and I don't believe in that for a minute. Last week we celebrated 18 years of ministry here as a church, and I believe that we're just getting started. And the best days are ahead that the Lord has for us to use us, especially in the day in which we're living in, as we continue in the Word of God, as we continue to be, you know, led by the Spirit of God, that God is going to do miracles, and He desires for us to serve others, and He's going to use us in a very powerful way. And He wants to do that in your life as well, the life that, that He is going to work through. The best days are ahead for you and for us. Do we really believe that? That he's not through with us, but he continues to want to work through us. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time and these verses that are very important for us to consider. And, Lord, in a day and age where there's all kinds of thoughts and redefinition of relationships and morals and marriage, that we would stand on what the truth of God's word declares. That marriage is a holy institution God-ordained between a man and a woman. And there are going to be those who are angry at us for standing on the truth of God's word and argue with us. But Lord, in love, may we give them truth. Father, as we do celebrate Father's Day, I want to also take the time to pray for all the marriages that are here. Lord, that you would bless the marriage relationship, every married couple that is here. And I know there's different situations. There are some that are here that are perhaps that their spouse is an unbeliever or going through difficulties. And I pray that you would work a miracle. That, Lord, that you would bring healing, that you bring restoration, that you bring unbelieving spouses to you. That the believing spouse would be just a witness and an example in their situation, that you bring strength and wisdom. Lord, for every married couple that is here that are believers, Lord, that we would walk in obedience and know that you desire for us to be fully committed to you. Lord, I thank you that you came as our bridegroom and one day that we're going to be taken away as the bride of Christ at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Father, I pray also that as we serve you, that we would be obedient, that we would serve with fervency, and Lord, that we would just draw out and give to others. And Father, I want to pray this morning that if there's anybody that is here that doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the hour when it came, did go to the cross for our sins. And you see, being a Christian isn't just joining a church or trying to be good. We're, none of us are good enough. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is a realization that you are a sinner, <clears throat> and Jesus said to repent, that is, turn direction, and surrender your life to him. He loves you, and he died and took your sins upon himself, and he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work, I've paid the price for your sins. He was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. And he says, come, for I am the bread of life. And whoever believes in me shall never hunger and thirst again. He's the living waters. He is the way, not a way, but the way, the truth, and the life. 
and no one comes to the Father except through him. He proved who he said he was. He validated what he did on Calvary's cross, and he is our salvation. There is salvation found in no one else or in anything else. It's in faith in Jesus Christ alone. If that means anything to anyone here today, today is the day of salvation. Will you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And if you're not right with God, you can cry out to him right now. And you can pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, come into my heart and be my personal Lord and Savior because I believe that you died for my sins. A sinner I am. Forgive me. And I believe that you rose again and you're alive and you're knocking on the door of my heart and I now let you in. I surrender my life to you. I believe in you. And I thank you for dying for me and doing it because you love me and help me now to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. If anybody prayed that prayer this morning, I want you to just put your hand up and put it back down. Anybody at all this morning, God bless you. Anybody else? And raising your hand doesn't save you, but what it is saying is that I'm making a decision for Jesus. If you're out in a coffee shop, we have pastors out there to be able to minister to you, and we want to pray with you and bless you, and anybody else at all. Father, I thank you for the commitment made this morning to you. And we know that whoever believes in you shall never perish but have everlasting life. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, the work that you've done. We thank you for the truth that you've given. And may we all walk out of this place with great joy in our hearts. Bless everyone's week here this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?